Well, this morning we're continuing our series we've called Viral. We're studying the book of Acts this summer, and we've come to Acts chapter 6 this morning, if you want to open your Bible there. And uh, we're, this is kind of a uh, hairy topic we're going to be talking about today on Father's Day, but it's where, it's where the book of Acts fell. We called this series Viral because uh, the church in 30 years spread to 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 islands in, in just over 30 years in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're studying the book of Acts to say, how did that happen? So where we land today is we're going to talk a little bit about conflict. The quickest way to blow up your family, to blow up your marriage, or to blow up a church is to live in conflict. It will, it will come apart at the seams. When we allow conflict to go unresolved, it continues to grow and it gets worse. Now, we all have conflict. We know what that's like. We have conflict on our jobs. We have conflict in marriage, conflict in family. And we think, well, other people are the problem. If we locked you in a room by yourself, you'd have conflict with yourself. We have inner conflict, right? We all feel torn sometimes about different things that go on. A large part of your success in life will be determined by your ability to effectively resolve conflict. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The greatest loss in conflict is forward progress. You lose all forward momentum. Conflict is exhausting, it's draining, it steals away the energy God's given you to do His will. Churches in conflict will sacrifice their mission. Marriages in conflict will cease to advance. Families in conflict will break down and become dysfunctional. Conflict is like a loop. You just circulate through the same things over and over and over and over with no forward progress, with no forward momentum. You just keep going around and around like a, a broken record. But peace is like an orchard, a well-kept orchard. It continues to increase and multiply, and it is fruitful. Now, uh, it's been said that conflict is like two forces trying to occupy the same space. I'll give you a real clear example of that. If you ever have two of your kids who call shotgun at the same time. How many of you know we're about to have a conflict, right? Because it's two forces trying to occupy the same space at the same time, right? So that's what conflict is. Now, what causes conflict? Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so there's one clue, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. We'll look at those two groups in a minute, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. But for now, here's some things that cause conflict. Growth. How many of you can remember you know, when you had your first child? Your family grew. Did that cause any problems? Yes. Sleep deprivation. Right? Had no idea how much money formula and diapers cost until we had that little baby. Why is it the smallest person in your home causes the most problems? I don't know, but that's the way it is, right? 
Growth causes conflict. Change causes conflict. Why can't we just leave things the way that they are? Because we can't. There's no other answer. Unmet needs cause conflict. Unmet expectations causes conflict. When priorities get out of order, we have conflict. In this case, the church was growing, which meant the resources were starting to become stretched thin, and some people were being overlooked. There were two main groups in the church, and one group was concerned they were always being overlooked. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Now, when, when one group feels overlooked and the other group's not, now we got a conflict, right? And so it's interesting if you track the progression of the church through the book of Acts, Satan tried to distract and to ruin God's plan through the church earlier through persecution. And last week, uh, when Pastor Mark shared with you guys, Satan tried to ruin the church through corruption, Ananias and Sapphira. And now, Satan is trying to ruin the church through conflict which may be one of his most effective weapons. So let's talk this morning about how do you deal with conflict, uh, Acts 6-2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. In other words, we see what's going on. There's a problem, but look, this is how we can't resolve it. So they got everybody together. How do you deal with conflict? Number one, deal with it immediately. Or as soon as possible. Deal with it immediately. The worst thing you can do to a conflict is ignore it and hope it goes away. Right? It's like that back closet in your spare bedroom. It's not going to fix itself. It collects things, right? You just shut the door. Maybe it'll get better on its own. It will not get better on its own. Jesus' 12 disciples got everyone together and started talking. In other words, they heard the news and they responded right away. Too many times we hear about people who, uh, particularly, I think maybe it's, um, maybe it's stronger in America. I don't think it's unique to America. It's probably worldwide. But we hear people who get offended and leave their church. And you say, hey, hey, what happened to so-and-so? Well, you know, I don't know. They got upset and left. What are they upset about? Nobody knows. That's non-Christian. That's not Christian. To resolve a conflict that way is un-Christian. I just call it out this morning. It's unchristian. It hurts the church. It hurts the kingdom of God. It hurts the mission of God. It is a distraction to the church growing and spreading and going viral. It, if our reputation as Christians, as people who just can't resolve our conflicts, what kind of testimony do you think we have in the world? Not a very good one. Jesus said, by this... All men will know you're my disciples. What? That you love each other. How are we going to love each other? We keep hiding from each other and running away from each other. When people come here from another church, I always like to ask, did you leave your last church well? Because if you didn't, don't be dragging all that baggage over here. We don't need it. Right? So when people say, oh, I said so-and-so, you know, and this, that, okay. Did you leave well? If you didn't leave right, you didn't leave. So if you need to leave, go back and leave right. If you don't, go back. And that's what I generally encourage. Go back. That's where God had you for a reason, so go back there. You'd be surprised how many marriages have blown up 
because conflict is ignored. How many adult children are not on speaking terms with their parents because conflict is ignored? A conflict in God's kingdom, though, is a crisis. Jesus' disciples gathered ASAP to deal with it because they realized it was a crisis. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says this, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Look at this verse 27. And do not give the devil a foothold. Let's talk about that for a minute. Stacy and I early in marriage decided that that scripture needed to apply to us. So we did everything we could do to never let a conflict go from one day to the next one. Wasn't always possible. But as much as we could control it, we said, let's don't go to bed mad. Let's don't go to bed with unresolved conflict. And sometimes it looked like this. We're not going to solve this tonight or we'll be up till 3 in the morning. And then we're going to hate each other more when we wake up, right? Because we're tired and mad now. How many of the worst thing in being mad is being tired and mad? We're going to be tired and mad. So can we just agree that we're going to love each other and sleep in peace and tomorrow with new energy we'll face this again? And can I tell you, it did miracles for our marriage. And it will for yours too. If you can find some common ground to begin to attack that conflict and not just each other. So verse 27 says, and don't give the devil a foothold. So, so, so what does it mean? Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, your anger, because it will give the devil a foothold. What's the principle? The longer conflict goes on, the wider the gap between you. And if the gap stays too long and grows too wide, the devil will fill it with something. And now you got a problem because the Bible calls that a foothold. Now there's three of you fighting, not just two of you. And that's not going to help anybody. And that's what's wrong with our country. Is we got this big widening gap in our country. And people aren't talking. They're talking about each other. They're not talking to each other. And the enemy has got a foothold in our country because the gap's been allowed to go on for so long. And then we just dehumanize each other. Don't even read a Facebook thread. People that have never met will call each other the, the t most terrible thing. And you say, how do we get here? Because the enemy has gotten in the gap. You can't let that happen in your marriage or your family or our church. Matthew 5.23 says... Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember, you came to church, you, you, you close your eyes, you're worshiping, and then all of a sudden you remember, uh-oh, your brother or sister has something against you. What are you supposed to do? Leave your gift there in front of the altar. This is a crisis. And it is more important than worship. There's not many things you can say that about. Leave that gift at the altar First go and be reconciled to them and then come back and offer your gift. If another Christian has something against you, whose job is it to take the first step? Yours. Now that's not how we think about it, right? Too many times we think, well, I mean, they're the one with the problem, not me. I don't got a problem. If they want to resolve it, they never call me. I mean, I never heard from them. I'm not mad. If I'm not mad and I'm not offended, then what, what should I do? The Bible says, reach out to them. 
That's what it says. Go try to make it right. Everything the Bible teaches about conflict says conflict is a crisis and must be handled proactively. We must make the first move. we got to respond as soon as we can. And that's exactly what the disciples did in this case. They heard complaints in the church and they said, well, family meeting time. And they called everybody together and said, let's resolve this. Number two, how do you deal with conflict? Deal with it sensitively. So the twelve gathered all the disciples. You know you're having a bad meeting when you're talking about the people that aren't in the room. That's a bad meeting. A good meeting is when you're talking to each other because you got everybody in the room that's involved in the, in the issue. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order for us to wait on tables. There are several things the disciples did that helped to close this gap. Number one, they listened. Now, how, how do we know that? Because they didn't just come out defensively, right? They listened. They heard. They listened deeply because they said, I see what you're saying. You have a complaint. This is a real issue. It needs a real solution. So we know that they listened. How else would they know there was a real problem? One of the most important skills you and I can learn in resolving conflict is listening. Now here's what I mean. Listen to understand, not just respond. Most of the time while we're listening, we're listening in order to formulate our response. That's not listening. That's strategizing. Listen deeply to understand and then respond. The other thing they did is they included everyone involved, and we already talked about that. They got all the disciples together. Here's another thing they did. They, and I want to spend some time on this. They saw God's work in their differences. Now, this is, this is we could do a whole series on this. Let's just talk about it a few minutes this morning. Verse 1, remember we mentioned these two groups. Uh, and I want to put them on the screen so you can kind of get an idea who they were. The Hellenistic Jews spoke Greek. They were from outside Palestine and, and probably had a very different culture than the other Jews. Now, these are two groups of Jews who had been converted to Christianity. And they bring their history and they bring their language and they bring their culture into the new church. Okay? And all the baggage and all that. The Hebraic Jews spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, we're not entirely sure, and they were natives of Palestine. In other words, they were the ones that were from around here, and the Hellenistic ones were not from around here. Guess which ones felt overlooked? The ones that weren't from around here, and they spoke Greek. So here's what happened. The Hebraic Jews probably thought they were the real Christians the important ones, the pure Jews, because after all, they spoke Hebrew. They spoke the language of the Old Testament that Moses and Abraham and Isaac and the whole gang, all the prophets, they spoke the original language. They retained the Old Testament culture. They're not the ones that left Palestine. They stayed. So as long as there have been people, there's always been one group who thinks they're more spiritual than the other group. Always. Where does that come from? Here's where I think it comes from. It comes from our strengths and our weaknesses. It comes from our strengths and our weaknesses. Either we think our strengths make us more spiritual than someone else, or we think our weaknesses make us less spiritual than someone else. 
Either way, it's a huge misunderstanding of how God made the church to work. Now, if you've ever heard of uh, this concept called sacred pathways, I want to talk about that for a few minutes because I think it gives us a lens by which to understand this. This is the idea that you and I all have different sweet spots in which we connect with God. In other words, in certain environments or certain activities, I will feel closer to God. I will more naturally and easily connect to God than maybe you will and vice versa. Now, I've, I've, I'll put on the screen uh, the nine sacred pathways that have been identified, and I'll give you an example. The first one is the naturalist. Uh, when, when I was about 30 years old, I start, I'd always grown up with a garden at my, at my family's house and missed that. And so I decided, hey, I'm, I want to have my own garden. So I had a guy help me, and we started a garden. And, and every, day, every morning I'd go outside. The dew's on the ground. You know, it's early summer, and everything's starting to come up. And I had this little water system to water it. And I would go out there, and I would just look at those little plants, and they're green, and they got little blooms on them. And I'd look, see how far they'd grown from the day before. And half the time, I'd come in from work at night, and I'd go look at them again. And I didn't even know what was happening. But every day as I would visit that little garden, I would find myself praying and singing. Sometimes I'd just be praying in tongues. And, I, and, I, and one day I looked back after about it, I thought, why do I do that? Why do I... Why do I, every time I go to the garden, why do I feel God? Because I'm a naturalist. I see God in nature. Now, if I'm not careful, I'll think I'm more spiritual than you are if you don't, because some of you just like them all, right? Some of you like the promenade. Some of you go, it's dirty outside. There's bees, you know, you'll get stung. There's a scorpion. I don't like, there's wild animals and you know, all of this stuff. And I'll begin to quote scripture. The heavens declare his glory. You know, the, God breathed life. It's the life of God in the plant. Where do you think the plant got the life? Right? So if I'm not careful, I'll make you feel a little less spiritual because you don't see God in God's creation. You don't connect with him that way. Here's the second group. We won't do them all. But we'll do this one because it's very relevant to us. Sensates. Sensates are people who love God through their senses, right? Their environment. They are, they are uh, uh, through experience. They're feelers. Spirit-filled churches are filled with sensates. Because that's just kind of how we're geared. That's sort of how we're wired. But if they're not careful, they'll make you feel less spiritual until you experience God the same way they do. Sensates sometimes think they're closer to God than everybody else. But what if, uh, let's suppose, you went to a mainline church that was very heavy on doctrine. Do you know who the, the spiritual group would be in that church? It would be the intellectuals. Because they've dug down in the theology, and they, man, they get deep in the word, and they, you'll go in there off, there'll be 20 books laid out, and they're going back to the original language, and they're looking in scrolls and manuscripts, and you know, they want to go on an archaeological dig, and they've got to the very, very bottom, it's pure, it's pure to them. And they will feel like they're more spiritual than everybody else, because they have the truth in greater purity, maybe, than other people. Now, we just got back from uh, Honduras, as I said, on a missions trip, and it was incredible. Now, I didn't see any of this on this trip, but I have been on trips before where the people who were out doing the construction work 
thought they were the, the main people. They thought they were doing what was most important and what everybody else was doing wasn't really as important. So, you know, they'll, they'll sit back and say, hey, we'll go to the church service if you want us to. We'll sing if you want us to. But the real reason we came here is to build. Everybody move out of the way. We're coming to build, right? Anybody? Nobody admit it now. On the list of um, sacred pathways, this might not sound like the right title, but those are the caregivers. They work with their hands. They're servants. They're behind-the-scenes people. They usually aren't very verbal, and they like to get things done. But, but, but look, but look, but look. They connect to God so much better when they're serving. You, you, you do know Jesus was a servant. This is okay. He took a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. Was he less God then? No, he wasn't less God. He was fully God in all his activity. When a person who's a caregiver is serving, their mind is clear, their energy is up, and they feel peace. Now, without sensates, we lack inspiration and creativity and beauty. Without caregivers, we lack progress. Now, which one is most important? <laughs> Neither one of them. We, we need them all. We need all the gifts. We need all the pathways. We need every bit of it. The mission of Christ and Jesus himself has given you the strength he's given you. And I bet you'll connect to God better in your strength than in somebody else's. I had the privilege while we were on this trip of working with a guy from a church in Enterprise who had been a um, master bricklayer for 34 years. All right? 34 years. Uh, me and another guy were working together, sort of slumping our way along until he showed up, and then we couldn't get out of his way. You know what I mean? We're doing everything we could do to try to help the guy, and he's just, he's just killing it. Do you, know, do you know how grateful I am? This was a good brother. He was a man of God. He had a sweet spirit. But I'm so grateful that he's a block layer because we got so much more done when he showed up than when I was there. I can preach. I can't lay block very well. How many of you know that the kingdom needs both? Right? And here's the thing. When we do what God wants us to do, when we connect the way God wants us to connect, man, we are worshiping. Okay, so we stayed behind at the, um, the, the main church there. Our whole group went to another church, but I stayed behind and preached at the main campus and a small group from our church. How many of you are here at Easter? How many of you are at Easter service? Do you remember the song Worth that we did? Remember that song? Well, a small group on our, from our team uh, learned the song in Spanish. And they got up, that church is about 10,000 people, four services, about 2,000 people each, and all kinds of other things. They got up in each of those four services, and they sang that song in Spanish, and they crushed it. I'm talking about killed it. I almost came off the front row and lost my shirt. It was incredible. It was incredible. Now, here's the thing. That's just for Father's Day, okay? Here's the thing. Which, which one of those pathways is the best? Neither. It took the whole team. 
It took the sensates. It took the caregivers. It, I don't know. Maybe I walked around in the woods a little bit. It took the naturalist. I don't know. It took everybody. You'll connect with God best through your strength. Just make sure you leave room for others to have different strengths than you do. There is no real group. There is no the true ones. We're all God's children, all God's sons and daughters. Look, the truth is, there's uh, Father's Day, right? Some of you men in this room, the truth is, if you were honest, you struggle because your wife is the spiritual one. And you look at her and you admire what she has and you look at you and you say, I can never have that. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. That's not true. You'll never have the relationship with God she has like she has it. But you can have just as deep of a relationship with God. It's just going to look different. So here's my encouragement to you guys. Find your strength and I bet you'll find your best path to connect to God. And if you do it on purpose, you will grow. You do not have to be feminine to be spiritual. But you do have to connect with God to be spiritual. Find the way that you do that and do it. We were... Um, we were uh, out eating a, a little while back. You'd, you'd be surprised. I got two sons, 16 and 20. And all our life after meals, I don't know why, just these spontaneous wrestling matches break out. I don't know why. It's just what we do. It's part of our goofiness as a family. And so we're sitting in uh, uh, the Japanese hibachi restaurant here in Alabaster not too long ago. And somehow or another, one of them, you know, messed with me. And so I had one of them in a headlock. We were just playing around. Normal dinner stuff for us, you know. And we went to leave, and, and the lady who worked there was traumatized. She could not imagine that a family would function that way. And look, I'm not making fun. I'm just telling you how I heard it. As we were walking out, she was staring at us, and she said, Why you beat your kids? <laughs> and and I, I started to try to explain it to her, and I said, Oh, it's never going to come through. Forget it. I just, we just laughed. He said, no, it was to play thing. But look, everybody's different. Everybody's different. You're going to have a very difficult time resolving conflicts if you can't appreciate differences. Number three, deal with it structurally. When I first began in ministry, I thought everything had a spiritual answer. It's a very hard lesson for pastors and Christians to understand that the solution, sometimes the solution isn't spiritual, sometimes it's structural. Structure can release spiritual things that have been hindered, or it can, or it can uh, bottle them up. For your body can have the greatest muscles the world's ever seen, but if you don't have a skeleton, if you don't have any bones, you're, you're going to have a hard time walking. So, so it takes a combination of the two. It's not surprising to me that one of the most spiritual churches on earth has also been called the most organized church on earth and is the largest church in world history, which is Yodio Full Gospel Tabernacle in uh, Seoul, South Korea. Usually conflict has a structural component to it, and if you ignore it, you will grow very frustrated that you pray and you fast and you do whatever you're going to do and you claim scripture at it, but it won't move. And that's because you're trying to attack a structural problem with a spiritual solution. Verse 3, brothers and sisters, here's the answer. 
Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and ministry of the Word. The problem was the Greek-speaking uh, widows were being overlooked. And the 12 disciples said, look, we're already doing everything we can do. The only way we can take better care of you is if we neglect prayer and the ministry of the Word, which is, which is our gift, which is the gift God gave us to do. So if we do more of this work, we have to do less of that work. Now, how many, how many of you have children? How many of you have children? Okay, how many of you have more than one child? You don't have a problem until you have two, right? Something breaks. Everybody knows who did it. This is no, you know, they're not going to, what are they going to do? You got two. It's a, he told me and she said, and I wasn't there and they pushed me and it's not my fault. And they looked at me wrong, right? It's all that, right? That's when you have, that's when you have conflict when you have two. As your family grows, you'll have to change the way you do things, not what you do, but how you do it. So when we had two kids, one of the things that we did is we said, okay, look, when we get in the car, you're going to sit here and you're going to sit here. This is your assigned seat. And you know, I got a 20 and 16 year old that's still sitting in the same spot. You know why? Because we hadn't talked about it again in 20 years and 16 years. But look, but look, that structure prevented a lot of conflict. Sometimes you just got to reorder the way you're doing things, not because you're trying to do something new, because you can't do it the way you used to. Because things have changed. Number four, deal with it spiritually. My belief is that all problems have a spiritual component. Not all problems have a structural component. But all problems have a spiritual component. And the quickest way to choke the, the spiritual life out of your family or the spiritual life out of the church is to try to fix a spiritual problem with a structural solution. Just keep reorganizing and, and all that stuff. That's not going to work because life is in the spirit. It's not in the structure. Verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be, look, full of the Spirit and wisdom. Notice they didn't choose knuckleheads. Right? Who are known. They have a reputation. And their reputation is they're full of the Spirit and wisdom. If just making sure all the widows had food wasn't an important task, then why did they want people who were full of the Spirit and wisdom? Why was that important? Because it was an important task. And they wanted spiritual people doing the task. Also, I think this is a very telling verse for people who think that all Christians are filled with the Spirit. There's a distinction here. If we had to choose believers who were filled with the Spirit, then, then the, the, if that's one of the requirements, then there must be Christians who aren't filled with the Spirit. So there's a distinction. Verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now they're praying. See, they weren't praying for the solution. They weren't there was a structural problem. They put in new structure. Structure's people. Now you do this and you do that and I'll do this. Let's divide and conquer. That's structure. Put God, but here's the thing. Once they got the right people in the right place, now they're praying the solution was these new leaders who were filled with the Spirit and wisdom. Now they're going to pray, lay their hands on them, and commission them. One other thought from this verse that stands out. We had a little more time with this because we had a shorter uh, passage. There's a racial component to this passage. 
Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. They are not the same race. They are not the same culture. They come from different backgrounds, but they form together from a Jewish background, a different cultural background, a different language to make one church. This is because the church was multicultural. By the way, all New Testament churches are multicultural. Look in the New Testament. Find me a church in the New Testament that was not made of more than one culture. That's kind of a, that's kind of a human phenomenon that we've invented. If you think that all churches ought to be all white or churches ought to be all black or churches ought to be all Hispanic, you're not going to like Kingwood Church very much and you're not going to like heaven at all. Right? Right? Now, as we started this morning, we said, what allowed the church to go viral? Here's one of the things. They effectively resolved conflict. And that released the church in power all over the world. Verse 7, here's the answer. So the word of God spread. This is the result. What happened? Verse 6, verse 1 is the problem. 2 through 6 is the solution. Verse 7 is the result. What happened? So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You got priests now becoming obedient to the faith. Why? It was such a testimony that the church could live multiculturally. That the church could live in unity. That the church could put their preferences aside and their offenses aside and come together and resolve conflict. If you want your family, if you want your marriage to flourish, you've got to resolve conflict. And it will, and it will move forward. The new leaders, the resolve conflict, release the church, and the number of disciples continue to grow. When you resolve conflicts, you clear the deck to become more fruitful and more productive because your energy can be singularly focused on what God wants you to do. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to ask every, every man if you'd come and join me here. I want to pray with you because it's Father's Day. So guys, it doesn't matter if you're a dad or not. You could be 14, 16, 18, 20, 80. It doesn't matter. Every guy, would you come? I love you. I'm so grateful that you came to church on Father's Day. And I'm so glad that our church doesn't have the reputation that when it's Dad's Day, we're going to go to the lake or we're going to golf or we're going to do whatever. You came to honor God today. Why else would you come? And, right? It's your day. You can do whatever you want. And I'm so, would you guys keep spreading out so they could come on in? And I'm so glad you came today. What, come on up, guys. Come on up. What a gift you are. What a gift you are to this church. What a gift you are to your family. What a gift you are to the kingdom of God. And I, I just want to encourage you today. Let me give you my observation, okay? It's a tough day to be a man. The expectations have never been higher. The pressure is high. The work hours in, in our culture are long. 
really, really, really long. And my impression is I rub shoulders with men from all, all over the place is that men are overworked. Men are oftentimes very stressed. Oftentimes, many, many guys didn't have a father figure that even laid good footsteps down to show you how to do what everybody expects you to do now. And you're kind of out there on your own just trying to figure it out. I think that because of maybe some changes that needed to happen in our culture, men are oftentimes underappreciated. So, man, I, I just want to encourage every, every mom, every wife, every daughter, man, make sure the men in your life are appreciated. I'm not saying that you underappreciate them. I'm saying you cannot overappreciate them. Because God has put them in your life and they are a gift and you guys display part of God's character that, that a woman cannot display. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for you. So today I just want to pray for you because we need you. You guys who, who aren't married, we need you to raise up and one day be good husbands and good dads. Those of you guys that are married, man, and maybe your marriage is in trouble. Maybe today this whole message on conflict hit a little too close to home. Man, we need you to work it out. And your wife needs you to work it out. And your kids need you to work it out. We don't need more kids growing up without a dad or sharing kids on the weekend or any of that stuff. I'm not saying it's easy. It's hard. Man, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying just work harder. That's probably not the answer. Man, I'm saying maybe you need some help. Maybe you need God to do something in your life today. Some of you are granddads. Man, reach down inside those grandkids and, man, leave a legacy and a deposit that they'll never forget. Maybe your family tree was just ruined. But maybe with you, a new legacy starts. And it won't be, you'll get a generation away and they won't even know what you grew up in. It'll be so different. You can do it. You can do it. You can start a new way, man. You can drive a, a stake in the ground and say, by God's grace, this won't happen again. Right? And look, it won't be because you just tried harder than everybody else. Guys, you can't do this if you try to do this through working hard or hard enough, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt other people. It'll come because you learned that you have a father who's perfect and who's with you and who loves you and who will help you and who will carve out in you a masculine spirituality that will transform your life and those around you. So I just want to pray for you, okay? Would you just close your eyes and let me pray for you today? Lord, I thank you today for these men. And I thank you for the spirit that they bring into this church. And I thank you for the, um, for the, for the masculinity and for the spirituality and for the um, uh, stability and the, and the credibility, the integrity that they bring into their family, into their homes and their workplaces. And I pray today for the men who are struggling for the marriages who just are at a dead end. God, I'm asking you to breathe new life today. 
If you need something from God as I'm praying, would you just reach out and get it and say, yes, Lord, that's me. Lord, give me new life today. Give me, give me new wisdom today. Lord, give me patience. Give me the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Do something inside me that I cannot do for myself. Come on and just reach out to him, guys. Say, Lord, here I am. Here I am, Lord, fill me. I want to be a man of God. I want to be a man after your own heart. God, I pray today that you would change minds, and I pray you would change hearts, and I pray you would change families, and you would pray you would change destinies. You would set new legacies in place. So, Lord, I pray over these men. I'm not here to condemn. I'm not here to tear down. I'm not here to criticize. We are here to build you up and lift you up and respect you and strengthen you and appreciate you. So today, Lord, I pray a blessing on these men. May you make them strong. May you make them wise. May you make them whole. May you make them mighty. May you make them spiritual inside their own personality. God, may you raise up an army of men after your own heart. Now, Lord, do in these guys what only you can do. In Jesus' name, we pray today. Come on, I want you to show a huge amount of appreciation for these guys right now. Let them know you. Come on, come on, lift it up. Let them know.